You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. Well, we are in what I believe is the 27th week of our series through the book of Acts. And this has been one of, if not the longest series we have ever done as a church together. If you're new to Revolution, maybe you're joining us online, checking us out. Uh, What we like to do 90 to 95% of the time is study through books of the Bible verse by verse. We feel like that is the best way for us corporately to study Scripture together. Uh, And it causes two things to happen. Number one, we don't abuse certain subjects in the flesh. And number two, uh, it causes us to deal with very difficult passages of Scripture and answer tough questions when we land on it in Scripture. Today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 18. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week, and we're going to look at verse verses 1 through 10. Now, right now, we are smack dab in Acts 18 in the middle of what's known as Paul's second missionary journey. Just to review, uh, Paul had four, some would say three because the prison missionary journey didn't count, but I believe Paul had four different missionary journeys, and we are smack dab in the middle of the second one right now in Acts chapter 18. So let's get started. We're going to read verse 1. I'm going to stop along the way. And uh, it's going to be good stuff. We're going to tie a lot into last week, too. So if you missed last week, uh, it's very important that, you know, if you go watch last week after you leave here, then it'll make a lot of sense as I refer back to it a little bit. So Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Y'all with me? Say, I am. It says, after this, Paul left Athens. That's where he was last week or in the last passage we looked at and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So Paul is in a new city that, as far as we know, he's never been in before, Uh, completely different from the city of Athens that we talked about last week. Actually, in this city of Corinth, the population was about 20 times the population of Athens, or roughly about 200,000 people were residents of Corinth. Corinth was known for several different things. One thing they were known for was their bronze work. If you remember back in Acts chapter 3, there was a man that was healed next to something called the beautiful gate by the temple. The beautiful gate was a beautiful bronze gate that was made in Corinth. Uh, They were also known for their architecture. They were known for sports because they had something known as the Isthmian Games, which was second only to the Olympics. But the number one thing Corinth was known for by far was their immorality. Corinth would be like a modern-day Las Vegas, and really Vegas is much more family-friendly now. So think Vegas like 30 to 50 years ago. That would be sort of the equivalent to Corinth. In fact, one theologian says this about the city of Corinth. So infamous was the city's debauchery that Aristophanes coined the word Corinthianize to mean to practice immorality. If you wanted to tell someone that they were loose in their morals, you would call them a Corinthian. Every single time there was a play in biblical times and there was a Corinthian in the play, they were always a drunk or they were always involved in some type of debauchery. Now, last week we told you guys that in Athens, if they had a slogan, they didn't, but if they had a slogan, their slogan would be, it's all about man. And Paul's slogan was the exact opposite of that. His slogan was, it's all about Jesus. And we talked about the differences in those two. Well, 
Uh, Corinth literally had a slogan that people would say when they referred to the city, and it was this, not every fellow can afford a trip to Corinth. This was a direct reference to the prostitution that would take place in Corinth. More specifically, the religious prostitution that would take place at a temple where they worshipped Aphrodite and they had a thousand what they would refer to as priestesses, but really they were a thousand prostitutes in this temple. Now, this puts into context some of the things that Paul wrote in First and Second Corinthians when he wrote the letters. Really, there was three or four different letters, but we put it in two different uh, books of the Bible. Uh, but this puts into context certain things that Paul would say about sexual immorality. For instance, in First Corinthians chapter 6, Paul said this, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So last week when Paul was in Athens, the main sin that was prevalent in the city of Athens was intellectual pride. This week, as Paul goes to Corinth, the main sin that is prevalent is clearly lust. We're introduced to this couple named Aquila and Priscilla, which would become friends of Paul. And isn't that like a cute name, Aquila and Priscilla? Like it rhymes. And when we say Aquila and Priscilla, you think of like a sweet old Christian couple that's just there to support Paul. But we're introduced to them and they would become great friends of Paul. Actually, if you read through the rest of the book of Acts, you'll see their name mentioned a couple of different times. And they're there, interestingly enough, because when the gospel exploded in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Paul wasn't the only one that took the gospel. Remember, Jews gathered from all around, and a bunch of them got saved on the day of Pentecost. And when they went home to their different cities, they took the gospel with them. But in Rome specifically, Claudius kicked all the Jews out because there was a riot that broke out over a Jew called Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. Now, most historians believe that that was a bad Roman interpretation of Christ, not Christus. So in other words, day of Pentecost happens, people go back to Rome, they're preaching the gospel, and we've established just by seeing Paul what happens with every city he goes into. There's always riots. He's beaten. He's stoned. There's people that get upset about the gospel. Well, in Rome, there's a riot that takes place as a result of the preaching of Christ. And Claudius kicks all the Jews out. And as a result, Aquila and Priscilla settle in Corinth. Uh, it also tells us that they were tent makers. Better translation is leather workers. Paul needed these friends. If you remember last week in Athens, Paul was by himself. And all through the book of Acts, Paul is rarely by himself. He always does better when he's with people. It almost seems like every single time he's with people, there's more fruit from his ministry. And so he runs into Priscilla and Aquila, and they become some of his best friends. I was thinking this week about best friends. How many of you guys have friends in your life that you couldn't make it without? Raise your hand, raise your hand. I was thinking about generationally just some best friends that are famous ones. You guys put the first one up. Anybody know who these guys are, right? Lord of the Rings, like, like couldn't, couldn't make it without each other. I mean, if he didn't have his best friend, <clears throat> they never would have made it to 
wherever. I don't, I don't even know. I don't, those movies confuse me. I can't keep up with it. Mordor for whatever. I don't know. So the next one, look, look at these guys. Anybody know who these guys are? Bill and Ted, right? Yeah, we know, we know who they are, right? Anybody know who these next guys are? Yeah, look at there. Best friends, man. Everybody knows who they are. How about the next one? Anybody know who these guys are? Yeah. None of the young people do, but all y'all older folks do. You're like, oh, yeah, Wayne's World, yeah. Everybody goes through their generations of SNL, right? Like, it was best with Bill Murray. It was best with Chris Farley. And so here's, here's that one. Uh, how about the next one? Anybody know who these guys are, the best friends? Right, raise your hand if you know who they are. Okay, listen. If you're visiting in here and you know who this is, this is the place for you. <laughs> Rev Church is where God is calling you, and you know that right now. Okay, so... How about the next one? Okay, couldn't gotta mention these guys. Maverick and Goose, right? I've got a picture of me with my best friend. There's my best friend right here. There it is right there. It's me and my best friend. Always there for me, you know? <laughs> Paul needed some friends. <clears throat> and he couldn't make it without them. Priscilla and Aquila come into the picture at a time in Paul's life that you're going to see where he desperately needed accountability. And really more important than that for Paul was encouragement. We're also introduced to Paul's trade here, his secondary trade that he learned as a child, which is referred to as tent making here, but a better translation would be leather working. Paul came from a region called Tarsus, which was a small town where they were known for goat skins that had black hair on them. And these particular skins uh, were used mainly for tents, uh, but it was leatherworking. Uh, Paul constantly would refer to tent making or leatherworking, and he would even use in the New Testament tent making talk, so to speak, leatherworking talk that people that were in the industry knew. For instance, when he said we should rightly divide the word of truth, that was tent making talk. What that referred to was cutting a straight line in a panel of leather. See, in Paul's day for Jewish fathers, it was a custom for them to teach their son a trade, especially a rabbi. He would learn a trade in case he needed secondary income at any time during his ministry. In fact, so important was this, there was actually a Jewish saying that went like this, and it still holds true today. Fathers who do not teach their son to work teaches their son to steal, Work ethic at this time was very, very important. What a great slogan for the United States of America in 2022. Get off your butt and get to work. Amen, Rev Church. I guess I'm just old school like that. You know what I mean? So, and I was going to make a joke about people that refuse to learn a trade and get a job, but they never work. So, <laughs> it's not the last dad joke you'll hear today. Don't worry. Paul even says stuff in the New Testament like, if someone doesn't work, they don't eat. So, so this is very important that Paul proves his grit as well and is working. Also something that Paul points out through the New Testament is we're not in this for profit. We're not trying to make a buck off the gospel. We're not one of these charlatans that preaches a prosperity gospel and is trying to take advantage of people. He makes that very clear. And so another thing that Paul is doing when he's doing this tent making, and this is going to lead to a bigger question after the next couple of scriptures that we read, a couple of verses we read, but he's proving his grit as he gets the ministry and the church off the ground, so to speak. Let's continue in verse 4. Y'all with me? Say, I am. Every Sabbath, 
Paul reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, so his friends finally show up, Silas and Timothy, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. So he puts down the leather work and he devotes himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Silas and Timothy bring a financial gift, a special offering from the church in Philippi or Thessalonica or a combination of both. And it allowed Paul to quit leatherwork and tent making and devote himself completely to full-time ministry. Now, this passage of Scripture in this section raises a very important question that has been debated for centuries, ever since uh, the Bible was written and Jesus died on the cross. It varies denomination to denomination. But the question is, should churches pay pastors full-time or should they have another job? Should we have staff people that are paid full-time to do ministry full-time? Should we have be paying missionaries to go do missionary work full-time? Or should they be a tent maker, as some would say? And this passage gives us a clear answer, yes and no. How about that for a non-answer, right, y'all? Yes and no. At the beginning, Paul is a tent maker. He's a leather worker. But at some point, he quits leather working and he goes to preaching and teaching and doing ministry full-time. I love the template that Paul gives us in this passage. I coach a lot of church planners. We have a lot of young leaders that feel called to ministry here at Revolution Church. And I believe that the best template to do is what Paul did. You start out unpaid, you prove your grit, and then at some point maybe the church will have the finances or the ministry will have the finances in order to pay you full-time. In other words, what I'm saying is I've never met a pastor or a full-time staff person at a church or missionary or someone uh, that works in a church that is a staff person that didn't first do something unpaid. They were heavily involved in the church. They, they served in some capacity. They started their own ministry. And for years, they did something unpaid and then eventually went into full-time ministry. I've never seen someone just like not serve in any way whatsoever, and all of a sudden they're paid in full-time ministry. I believe that's a, a great way to look at uh, whether someone should be paid or not as the church gets off the ground. I mean, I wasn't paid for three months in the church. As the church gets off the ground, uh, it gets to a place where the church can then afford to pay a full-time minister and bring staff on. Uh, but usually you start out by proving your grit, proving your commitment, those types of things. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. Paul gives us a good template for this. Verse 6, it continues, and watch what happens. Watch the attitude of Paul and watch what happens in verse 6. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Pretty big confrontation Paul has here at the synagogue in Corinth. The people that he was trying to convince to get saved became what this translation, the NIV says, abusive. But a better translation would be that they rejected and blasphemed Paul. In other words, they passively rejected Paul and they aggressively rejected Paul. 
It's important to note the distinction here that they did not blaspheme God. They were blaspheming Paul. And to blaspheme means to curse someone, to slander someone, to treat someone with contempt. Another definition is blasphemy is any manner of speech that disregards or disrespects the value of another. As a result of this blasphemy, Paul shakes out his clothes. And I guess that's how you shake your clothes out. I don't know why I'm doing that with my hands. But, but Paul shakes his clothes out, and, and we kind of don't understand that because we don't do that today. But this is right in line with what we talked about several weeks ago. If you remember, we talked about a time where Paul shook the dust off his feet at one city where they rejected the gospel and went on to the next city. And shaking the dust off your feet is what Jews would do when they would come from a pagan city and they were getting ready to go into the temple. They would shake the pagan dust off their feet in order to honor God. It was them saying, I have left this place and now I'm going into a better place. Chuck Swindoll has a different interpretation of Paul uh, shaking his clothes. Listen to what he says. Paul's gesture of shaking out his garments is highly symbolic and extremely offensive. People shook their garments to rid themselves of crumbs after a meal or dust after sitting for a period of time. Without words, this said, you are now like crumbs to me. I'm shaking you off and leaving you behind. Pretty strong statement by Paul. Paul then says, your blood be on your own heads, which is a direct reference to the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, when God pronounced judgment on people for their disobedience. The point is this. This is a little bit out of character for Paul. And most theologians and commentators and historians, Christian historians agree, that in this instance, Paul is at the height of frustration in his ministry, and he is very weary. Watch what happens next in verse 7. It says, Then Paul left the synagogue, And went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader in his entire household, believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Now, it's interesting, these names, Titius Justus and and, uh, Crispus, they're actually mentioned in the book of Corinthians. Uh, Crispus, was, for instance, was one of the people that Paul actually baptized. He didn't baptize many, uh, but Crispus was one of them that he did baptize. Verse 9, continue. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Now, understand what's happening here. The Lord speaks to Paul in a vision. This is Jesus coming to Paul and speaking to him specifically. And so understand the weight of these words. These are red-letter words. If you have like an old-school King James Bible, these are what Spurgeon would refer to as bloody words, in other words. This isn't Paul talking. This isn't Pastor Josh talking. This is Jesus himself coming to Paul, and he says this, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Paul is weary. He's exhausted, worn out. He's discouraged in this moment. And to put it another way, Paul has reached his point where he cannot take any more. In fact, we see this idea backed up in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when Paul said this, when I came to you, I came to you in weakness 
with great fear and trembling, referring to when he comes to Corinth. It's been speculated, and we know that Paul got physically ill at certain points during his ministry, but it's been speculated that at this specific point, Paul may be dealing with a physical illness, but it's clear that he's discouraged. If you remember when we preached through uh, Paul going to Athens last week, um, there wasn't a lot of fruit in Athens. It's been a while since there's been an explosion like Pentecost take place. See, the, the second missionary of journey of Paul, it reads really good as we read it as Christians 2,000 years later, but Paul lived it. And he's thinking through his head like, Okay, first missionary journey, I got stoned in Lystra. Second, I've been falsely accused. Uh, I've been beaten. I've been ran out of town. Haven't even seen a whole lot of people get saved. I mean, even in Athens, when he gave that beautiful sermon with the intellectuals, the Bible tells us there was like three people that converted as a result. So, so it's not like the church is exploding and that's just encouraging him. Here he is dealing with all this emotional trauma. Throw on top of that that Paul was a committed Jew from a small town called Tarsus. And he walks into the Las Vegas of the day, Corinth, which was worse than Las Vegas is today. And there had to be some culture shock in the things that he saw. There had to be this, oh my gosh, I thought people were bad, but this is a whole nother level of crazy here. I've never seen anything like this. So Paul is discouraged. Rev Church, have you ever felt like Paul in this moment? I dare say there's some folks that are here this weekend. And this message is very timely for you because you're at a place where you feel like you can't take anymore. You've reached your point like Paul. You're weary you're at the height of your frustration. Maybe you're dealing with a physical illness that just won't get better. You're discouraged because of some situation or relationship or something in your life. Maybe you're here this weekend, and I believe, that, again, this is speculation, but I believe this is one of the things that Paul was struggling with. Maybe you're, you're, you're down about God's purpose for your life. And you're sort of doubting that. Well, take heart because the words of Jesus that encouraged Paul 2,000 years ago are meant to encourage us today so that we stay in the race and continue to fight the good fight. Jesus promises three things to Paul. And these three promises are for us this weekend as extensions in the family of Christ. First, Jesus promises his presence to Paul. Notice the first thing he says, I am with you. Rev Church, listen to me this weekend. You're here. You're in a season where you feel alone. You feel like you can't hear God. You feel like you're in a valley all by yourself. If you've put your trust in Christ, he is with you. You are not alone. Go read Romans chapter 8 if you want to be encouraged about when God will stay with you and what he'll stay with you through. 
Secondly, Christ promises protection to Paul. He says, no one is going to attack or harm you. Now, this isn't a blanket promise. We know that Paul has been through some physical trials so far, and he'll go through more in the future, but it's for this season of his life. It's going to be a pretty long season, as you're going to see. I believe that this encouragement is meant for us today to understand that if we're wearing the armor of God, no one is going to take our salvation from us. God has protected that for us. Thirdly, Christ promises Paul that he has a plan. I've got a plan for every single bit of this. What did he say? I have many people in this city. Most scholars agree, no matter if they're Arminianist or Reformed or whatever, that this passage, when he says, I have a plan, and he's talking about his plan, he's referring to the people that are in Corinth that are part of the elect, the ones that God in his sovereignty knows are going to meet Jesus. And he's telling Paul, listen, there's getting ready to be a harvest in Corinth. And when all those people get saved, it'll be in such a great number that you will be protected as a result. What Jesus is really doing here is he's encouraging Paul and encouraging us to continue to run the race and not give up, even when we're discouraged, even when we're down, even when we're doubting. Jesus is giving us this idea of no matter what happens, success in being a Christian is all about longevity and sticking with it. It's a crock pot. It's not a microwave. Seems like we've talked about this a few times in the book of Acts, right? We stick with it. A few weeks ago, I told you, hey, how do you defeat your critics? You outlast them. It's all about longevity in this life and following Jesus. As the theologian John Madden once said, <clears throat> John Madden, y'all know who John Madden is, the football coach, right? Yeah, we quoted the theologians ACDC, the band, last week. Now we're quoting John Madden. I'm not saying that I know how to fix everything when the going gets tough, but I do know this. When the going gets tough, you don't quit, you don't fold up, and you don't go in the other direction. Jesus is telling Paul, keep preaching the gospel. Don't quit. I've given you a purpose. Don't give up. I've known a lot of people as a senior pastor over nine years that have quit. One time I was talking to a doctor that quit being a doctor because he said he just didn't have the patience to be successful. <laughs> I was trying not to smile as I said that. One time a banker told me he was quitting because he lost interest. <laughs> I was talking to one guy that quit smoking, and I said, how do you feel now? He said, delighted, you know. <laughs> we don't quit. We don't give up. In Acts chapter 23, Paul goes through a similar discouragement and Jesus shows up again and he tells Paul this take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem so you must also testify in Rome Jesus wants every single person in here to be encouraged by the words of scripture this weekend and not give up on your calling and not give up on following Christ you know the longer I live this life the more I realize that 
that people tend to judge their life off a scoreboard that Jesus never even mentions. And here, just look at the words of Jesus. Like, he doesn't mention the scoreboard that we tend to judge our successes off of in life or in church work. Nowhere does Jesus look at Paul and speaking to the life side of things say, Paul, how much money have you made? Paul, uh, how big is your house? Paul, how, how nice a, a donkey or a car do you have? Paul, are you wearing designer clothes? Paul, do you have a lot of social media followers? Paul, is everybody your friend? Paul, are you liked by everyone? Uh, Paul, did you get promoted at your job? Now, none of those are necessarily bad things, but notice Jesus doesn't mention any of those things. On the church side of things and ministry side of things, notice what's left out. Everything that we judge success on in the church in America, Jesus doesn't mention any of it. He doesn't look at Paul and say, Paul, how many converts has there been? Because there hadn't been many, had there? Doesn't even mention it. Doesn't look at Paul and say, Paul, are you growing the church number-wise? How's the offerings going, Paul? They're taking a dip. You better start raising more money. Have you secured a facility yet? Man, this preaches to Rev Church for where we're at, doesn't it, y'all? Doesn't it? Boy, it gives me comfort. Paul, your, your sermon last week was a little dry. Need to work on it. The greeters didn't do good out in the lobby greeting everyone as they walked through the door. Need to work on it. Now, again, none of those things are bad. I'm not saying they're bad. We have a plan. We do the best we can with those things. But the only scoreboard that Jesus uses clearly through Scripture is in one word, obedience. That's all he concerns himself with. Nothing else that we tend to look at and put stock in is even on the mind of Christ as far as our walk with him is concerned. It's one thing. It's obedience. Keep preaching the word. I'm with you. I'll protect you. And I've got a plan. doesn't mention anything else. In other words, our job is to be obedient to what Christ has called us to do. Jesus is in charge of the results. We don't judge ourselves based off a scoreboard that we've created, that the world has created, or let's be quite honest, that the church has created. We do one thing. We read the Bible, and we do what Jesus tells us to do. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for this book of the Bible. Paul needed encouragement. He was about to bolt in Corinth, I believe. He was about to take off. And as a result of your encouragement to him, he stays for the second longest missionary stint that he ever stayed. He, he stays a year and a half. And you use him mightily to see people get saved, see a church be started, ministry start to happen. God, I, I just pray for every single one of us in here right now. As we've watched Paul and we do the best we can to emulate those things that Paul does right, I pray today we emulate 
what Paul does after this. We keep running the race. We keep fighting the good fight. We get to the end of the marathon. And God, I pray this weekend for those in here that think Christianity is a sprint, that you have revealed to them that it's about longevity, man. I pray that you give every one of us the strength to be obedient so that we can be effective. The strength to walk in the Spirit and to be filled with the Spirit and allow you to lead us and guide us into exactly what it is you want us to do. Finally, God, I pray for the people in here that have no purpose in you. Man, they've been sitting on the sidelines their whole life doing nothing. I would even question if they really know Jesus because all they've ever done is showed up to church a couple times a month, never give, never serve, never wash feet. I pray that your Holy Spirit grabs a hold of them and that this weekend they're encouraged to discover their purpose and make a difference and start to live fully and completely for you. We love you in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes. 